Our scripture lesson is taken from John chapter 12, page 1239 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 12, I'll begin reading at verse uh, 19 and read through verse 36 with particular attention to verses 27 through 36. And just a word of explanation before I uh, read, just a a reminder. This is, uh, the events of this uh, text occur on Palm Sunday after Jesus has been received. We're still on Palm Sunday and uh, a little later in the day after the triumphal procession into Jerusalem, we uh, see this exchange between uh, uh, the people with whom Jesus dealt. John 12, verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and asked him saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Thus far the reading of God's word may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, on Palm Sunday, Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah and the promised King the son of David, who would restore Israel to their, its former glory or greater glory, 
one who would come and reign forever over Israel, vindicating Israel, setting Israel free from the nations about them. This is what they were looking for in Jesus. The enemies of Jesus saw the crowds welcoming him, and they despaired. The enemies of Jesus thought, oh, where have we gotten now? We've been opposing him for three years. We've been trying to discredit him. We've been trying to convince the people he's a heretic and that he's, he's demon-possessed, and we've accused him of all sorts of things, and, and nothing seems to work. The whole world is going after him. And as soon as they say that, as, as if right on cue, a group of Gentiles, Greeks, come inquiring, we want to see Jesus. Indeed, the whole world is coming after him. But when Jesus hears that the Gentiles are now inquiring about him, he knows the scriptures and he knows that this means the end has come. This means the fulfillment of, of Jewish rejection. Uh, the Gospel of John began, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And, and now that receiving not is about to be fulfilled when they put him to death. And so he says, now my hour has come. Earlier in the gospel, he had said uh, his hour had not yet come, but now his uh, hour has come, and it's the hour of his death, the time of his death. And we read, his soul is troubled. He is deeply troubled. And when he is deeply troubled, what does he do? Well, he does what what all of you should do, what I should do, when we're deeply troubled, we should pray. So tonight I want to look at his prayer. I want to look at God's answer to his prayer and then the crowd's reaction to it all. First of all, regarding Jesus' prayer, we ought to take note of the fact that at first it appears that Jesus is uncertain as to what he ought to pray about. He's wrestling with these troubling thoughts that he has. He's anticipating crucifixion. He's facing suffering, the wrath, not only a physical um, torture that could last many hours, he is facing suffering the wrath of God against the sin of the world. Although he is divine, he is also fully human, and he expresses the dread that we would all feel if we knew intense suffering lies ahead. And so he asks himself if he should pray to be spared that suffering. Shall I? Shall I pray, save me from this hour? At the beginning of the Gospels, we read of Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now we see another temptation that he faces and that he does not give in to. The temptation to, to throw it all in. No, I don't want to endure that suffering. I, I, I refuse to, to accept that kind of pain and suffering and agony when I, I don't deserve it. And so he says, shall I pray that? No. No, he's not going to pray that. This is similar, you know, to what uh, we read a little later on in the, uh, in the garden uh, if it, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He says, I'm going to go to the cross. 
I'm going to the cross. That's what I came. I, I came for this hour. The son of, we read in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again in Hebrews 9, 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Shall I pray, save me from this hour? No. All of Scripture says I came for this hour, and, and for this hour I, I, I come. And so I'm not going to pray, save me from this hour. Rather, I'm going to say, Father, glorify your name. In that, he is basically saying, Father, do what you think is best. Do what you think is best. In the garden, he said, not my will, but your will be done. Here he's saying, I'm not going to seek my own life. I'm not going to seek my own glory. Let your glory uh, prevail. Uh, he puts himself, in both cases, into his Father's hands and say, Father, glorify your name. Jesus' prayer is, is showing us a truth of Scripture that, is, that comes out over and over again in Scripture that really everything that happens is, in God's plan is for his glory. We were created for his glory. And we are to live to his glory. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything is about God's glory. And, and Jesus submits to that as well. He willingly submits to that. Father, glorify your name. In the Bible, the word for glory uh, in the Hebrew language is a word that means heavy or weighty. Glory is that aspect of a thing that gives its weight, gives it weight, gives it substance, gives it a significance, gives it importance. For example, the, the sheer mass of, of mountains uh, make them glorious. You know, they're so weighty, they're so big, they're so powerful, they're so significant that, that they are glorious. And uh, the same with the, the ocean. It is uh, a glorious uh, thing uh, to behold. Uh, it's, uh, its size, it's, uh, uh, the fact that God created it, is, it's all glorious. And of course, God is, is unlike the mountains and the, the oceans and so forth. They, they are finite, they are limited. He is infinite, so His glory is infinite. And you and I were created to, to know His glory. He created us so that we could experience His glory, so that we could see it and, and revel in it. Not because he's an egotist, but because he knows that there is no greater good than his glory and that if we see his glory, we will delight in it. You know, uh, uh, there are some families that are not here with us today because they're on vacation. And one of the families of our church uh, woke up this morning on a, a, uh, in a rental uh, on the beach in Florida and they they went out on the sand before sunrise and, and watched uh, the sun come up over the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it was glorious to behold. They thrilled to, to see it. Uh, it was a beautiful day, way to be, begin the Lord's Day and uh, to begin their wedding anniversary as well, which is today. But uh, anyway, uh, you see the, the sun rise over the ocean and it's glorious and it thrills your heart. <laughs> they didn't go to... Uh, to uh, Des Moines and to one of the seedier sections of Des Moines uh, where the, uh, 
there's cars on blocks in, in the front yard and nobody cuts the grass and that sort of thing. That, they didn't go there to, to see uh, something on their vacation. They went to, to see God's creation because God's creation is, is so beautiful. Well, if the crea- creation is beautiful, how much more glorious, how much more wonderful will it be to, to see the Creator? And because He is infinite, we'll never grow tired of His glory. Uh, there'll always be something new. It is pure delight to soak in the glory of God. The chief end of man is to, to, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him, to enjoy His glory forever. How sad and tragic it is when people are blind to the glory of God. Uh, choose to live uh, with the, looking down in the dirt like, like the prodigal son when he turns his back on his father in his father's house and he goes to live with the pigs. So are those who are blind to the glory of God. Jesus understood that he could do nothing better than do the Father's will and thus bring glory to the Father. So that's what he's prayed. He, he healed the man born blind so that God would be glorified. He raised Lazarus from the dead so that God would be glorified. And now he's going to go to the cross and endure the agonies of death and hell so that God might be glorified. How does an agonizing death glorify God? Well, because that death accomplishes the salvation of untold numbers of sinners, undeserving sinners. It's glorious because it was a voluntary act of uh, a self-sacrifice for the well-being of others. Pray, Father, may your name be glorified. You know, when you are troubled, (laughs) when you are facing difficulty, a difficulty that can't be avoided, Uh, when trials and tribulations come into your life over which you have no control and you don't know what to pray, pray, Father, may you be glorified through this. May you be glorified through this. May I see your glory even in the difficult things of life. The Bible says now we have to suffer grief through all kinds of trials so that your faith, which is more precious than gold, that it passes through the fire so that your faith may be tested and, and, and matured and so that it might redound to the glory of God on the day that Jesus comes. That should be our prayer, that through our trials and tribulations, God would be glorified in us and through us. Now, God answers this prayer. He answers uh, verbally uh, from heaven. This is the third time that God speaks from heaven. He spoke at at the baptism. He spoke at the Mount of Transfiguration, and he speaks now. Uh, He testifies to Jesus. You know, the Bible says, let every matter be settled uh, uh, with two or three witnesses. Well, God witnesses three times that uh, he loves Jesus and that uh, he, he cares for Jesus. He declares, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus says, glorify your name, uh, the Father says, I'll do it. I'm listening to your prayer and I, I grant uh, uh, your request. In fact, the Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That has raised a lot of speculation among scholars. What is God referring to? Two two acts of glorification. 
The Father has glorified his name. He will glorify it again. What are these two great acts of God by which he glorifies himself? I think the best answer is creation and redemption. He has glorified himself in creation. All creation shows forth his glory again and again. It's a a constant giving glory to God, but God created and he finished his creation and he has glorified himself through his creation. But then he does even something more glorious. He redeems fallen sinners who don't deserve the least of his kindnesses. He would be justified in sending us all to hell immediately for our sins, but instead he has compassion, he takes pity, he loves this fallen world that rebels against him, and he he sends uh, his son into the world to save us. Now this this, uh, answer of God, I think, really has two parts to it. There's the the audible part, and then there's the explanation of it that Jesus, that Jesus gives. Jesus explains what the voice is all about, and, and that's part of the answer, and that's part of the answer for, uh, for us as well. Uh, we know what God said, even though the uh, people there at that time didn't uh, immediately understand the words. Uh, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us through the gospel writer what was spoken, and we have, we have that as uh, God's answer to the prayer, but then we also have what Jesus said about the prayer. And uh, he explains, first of all, that the, the voice was for their benefit. Now that seems a little strange to us because those who heard it didn't understand it. Uh, some thought it was thunder, others thought it was the voice of an angel, but none seemed to know what was said. So how can that be a benefit? Well, uh, it can benefit them at least two ways. First, they know that something significant has happened. The fact that it was thunder is uh, a significant event when there is no uh, cloud in the sky to, uh, to cause the thunder. Uh, others thought it was the voice of an angel. They, they didn't see any storm clouds, so they said, well, it must be uh, uh, the voice of an angel. They, they all knew that, that something significant uh, had happened uh, to get their attention. And uh, John, the, the gospel writer, tells us several times that things happened during the life of Jesus that, that really nobody understood at the time. But then after Pentecost, then things were made plain and things were made clear. And that's uh, what we can expect here, that, that Jesus said, this is for your benefit. This, this is for the people in Pella. It's for their benefit. You know, it's for everybody who reads about this for the next 2,000 years. It's for their benefit because I'm going to tell them in the Gospels what was said, and I'm going to tell them through Jesus' explanation what it means. And what does it mean? Well, Jesus says it means that four things are going to happen. He says the judgment of the world is about to happen, and the ruler of the world is about to be cast out. And the Christ is about to be lifted up. And fourthly, when he is lifted up, he will draw all peoples or all nations uh, to himself. These are the means by which God will glorify himself. That's why I think uh, uh, the, the second act of glorification is about redemption, because all of these four things, the judgment of the world, the, the ruler of the world being cast out, and the uh, uh, Christ being lifted up, and And when he is lifted up, the nation's being drawn to him. It's all about redemption, God being glorified through redemption. What do these things refer to? Well, in his death, the world is judged because God shows his wrath against the sin of the world. 
when we see Jesus suffering on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see what, what your sin deserves, what my sins deserve. We see what the world's sin deserves. We all deserve to be forsaken of God. And so the judgment, the judgment of God upon the world is revealed in the death of Jesus Christ. But also through his death, the rule of this world is cast out because Christ's death results in the defeat of Satan. Satan no longer rules this world. He was a usurper who is uh, now uh, being uh, dethroned and deposed, and uh, Christ is uh, going through his, uh, his dominion and uh, taking Satan's servants out of, out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them out into the kingdom of light, uh, redeeming us uh, by the power of his uh, death and resurrection. And uh, in his death, uh, Christ is lifted up. Now, the, the lifting up is more than just physical, that is, you know, lifted up on a cross, uh, three, four, five feet off the ground. I don't know how high the cross was, but he was lifted up physically, literally, he was lifted up. But I believe that the word lifted up here means more than that. It's, it's, he's lifted up in the sense that he is exalted. When he go, gets on that cross, we see great Savior we are. We see why the Father has given him a name which is above every name, so that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess. He is lifted up. He is exalted because of what he did on the cross, literally lifted up and uh, spiritually uh, exalted as well uh, before the world. And because he is lifted up both those ways, uh, lifted up in death and lifted up in uh, glory, uh, people are drawn to him. You know, we talked this morning about how, how we can draw other people out of their sin by humbling ourselves and, uh, and uh, forgiving their sins uh, before we go and talk to them. And uh, as we think about this tonight, about Jesus' death on the cross, I, I want you to think for a moment, what, what drew you to Jesus? Was it his wrath? Or what his, was it his love for you displayed at the cross when he died for you? Were, were you drawn to believe in him? Were you motivated to, be, to believe in him because he came to you with, with thunderbolts from hell, uh, holding them up over your head saying, if you don't get down on your knees and pray the sinner's prayer, I'm going to stab this thunderbolt right through your heart? Or did he come to you gentle and lowly saying, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's how he comes to us. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick. He is gentle. He is meek. He is mild. He comes with love. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the apostle says, don't you know? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the threatenings of his wrath that lead us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's how he draws us to himself. That's how he draws the nations to himself, by the display of his love for a fallen world when he goes to the cross. God's answer and Jesus' explanation of it confirms that God's glory is at the heart of everything. If we know nothing of the glory of God, we are like those who who go off to live with the pigs. Uh, but if we know the glory of God, 
then we, we, we see it in redemption, we see it in his love, we see it in the, the, the voluntary self-sacrifice of the sinless Son of God to die for sinners. This is God's answer. I will glorify my name again, and I will glorify it through the death of Jesus Christ. And we see his glory, and we see the, the glory of his love, and we can't help but be drawn unto him through the power of that love and glory working in us by word and spirit. Now the crowd listens to Jesus' explanation. They, they've heard thunder, they've heard a voice of an angel, they've heard something that they don't understand, and, and, and they hear Jesus explaining it, and their response is confusion. They just don't get it. They don't get it because their idea of the Messiah, their idea of the coming king, is someone who will rule forever, who will usher in a glorious kingdom that will never end and sit upon the throne of his father David forever and ever. The idea of this person suffering and dying and the, Jesus calling himself the Son of Man and the Son of Man must be lifted up, this just doesn't compute. And it's not just the crowd. The disciples also. Jesus has been telling the, the 12 disciples for, for months, you know, I have to go up to, to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and put to, be put to death and rise on the third day. And the first time Peter heard it, he said, no, <laughs> I'm not going to let that happen, you know. And even though he, Peter accepted his rebuke and, and stopped saying that sort of thing, nevertheless, every time Jesus spoke about his death, it just didn't compute. It didn't fit with what they expected of the Christ. How do they make sense of this? Well, Jesus' answer to them is, is quite significant and has great uh, significance for our lives as well. He doesn't, he doesn't sit down and say, okay, let's go back to Daniel 7. Let's go back to Daniel 7, and, and Daniel's, or is it Daniel 9, I think, uh, uh, verse 7, whatever, I, um, I'm confused now. But anyway, go, let's go back to Daniel, where he talks about the Son of Man. And it's, I had a vision, and I saw one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He sees the Son of Man going up on the clouds to the Ancient of Days where he receives a dominion and, and authority and so forth. And uh, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't explain what they're confused about. Instead, he, he says, look, you have light with you right now. You have light with you right now, so walk in that light. What's he talking about? Well, he is the light. His, his very presence is a light to them. It's a revelation to them. And his, his words have been a light to them. And his miracles have been a light to them. Sufficient light that they ought to believe in him. That they ought to trust him. Uh, so that they might become sons of the light. Sons of the light means they are characterized by light. They are illuminated. They understand. They get it. And Jesus is saying, look, I've done enough. I've done enough so that by this time you should trust me, even though you don't have all your questions answered. You know, I, I've, I've seen people like this, you know, in the world that say, unless all my questions are answered... <laughs> 
unless I get an answer to this, this, and this, you know, I want to know why, about the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world? How can there be a good God and, and still be evil in the world? And uh, uh, what's the, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? I need to know all of this before I commit. You know, I'm going to sit in judgment on the Bible, and, and uh, if it doesn't meet my standards, then I'm not going to accept it. And Jesus says, look, I've shown you enough. I've shown you enough that you should trust me. I've come to you. I've taught you. I've showed you my miracles. And we have the record of those miracles, and we have the, the record sealed with the blood of martyrs who, rather than contradict what they had written or contradict what they preached, accepted death, so that we know that this has historical validity, more, more historical proof for the life of Jesus than for many events uh, and, and uh, of uh, ancient history, even uh, more modern events. Uh, you have light, and while you have the light, walk in the light so that you might come, become sons of the light. And as you walk in the light and become sons of the light, then you, you will understand. You'll come to understand and, and believe. Jesus said uh, something similar to that in John 8 when he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Abiding in his word means accepting him at his word, listening to him, believing in him, trusting him, trusting his word. When you do that, when you commit your way to him, then the lights go on. Then you begin to understand. Then you begin to say, aha, now I see how these things work together. Then you will know the truth. Then the truth will make you free. But first, you have to you have to walk in the light that's given. And the New Testament and the Old Testament together give us more than enough evidence that we should trust in Him, that you should trust in Him, even though all your answers might not yet be, uh, all your questions might not yet be answered. At the cross, we see love. We see love for lost sinners. And if nothing else, that should convince you that you can trust Jesus that you can trust him even though you don't understand everything, even though not all your questions are answered. You've seen what he did for a lost world. You see the compassion that he has upon people when he was on this earth, how he healed their diseases, how he, he cast out demons, showing us he has power, how he raised the dead so that we can believe him, that he is the resurrection and the life, and that whoever lives, whoever believes in him, even though he dies, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in him will never die. You know, we, we have the evidence that we need to believe this, and if you will put your faith in him and believe in him, then you will become a child of the light. The lights will go on and you'll begin to understand and to grow. That's what Jesus is telling the crowd here and that's what he's telling us as well. He wants us to look at the cross, see there God glorifying his name. He had glorified himself in creation, now he is glorifying himself in redemption and the glory of redemption is his love, his love for lost sinners like you and me. See that love. Humble your heart, believe in him, become a child of the light, and then you will indeed see the light.